Before we begin, just a reminder again that you can email catholicdailybrief at gmail.com if you have any questions or ideas for topic for an episode, and I'll try my best to answer the question in a future episode. But today we have episode 68, What Did the Early Christians Think About Mary? Part 3. And today, since it's December 8th, the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception, we will be discussing that third of the four dogmas of Mary, her Immaculate Conception. And just to begin, I will read the definition given to us by Pope Pius IX in 1854. The, the proclamation is quite long, but the most important and the actual dogmatic definition is as follows, quote, We declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which holds that the Most Blessed Virgin Mary in the first instance of her conception by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin, is a doctrine revealed by God and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful." So a couple of things to note in that statement. What was said right there at the end is important to understanding what it means to be a dogma. That is, that it is revealed by God. It is not some devotion proposed by the church for edification of the faithful. It's not some addition to the deposit of faith. It's considered something revealed by God in scripture and tradition. And because of that, it must be held with divine faith. That means that we hold the Immaculate Conception to be as true and as indisputable and as necessary to believe as, say, the Incarnation or the Doctrine of the Trinity. Of course, they are different in their importance to our salvation because the one deals with God and the other deals with Mary. But the point is that they are both held as divinely revealed. And as divinely revealed, we must hold them with divine faith, with supernatural faith. We can't dispute or choose not to believe the Immaculate Conception. We can't just say, well, I don't emphasize Mary as much, so I don't believe the Immaculate Conception. That's what we consider heretical. It's denying some principal aspect of the faith. If it's revealed by God, it is not up to us to choose not to believe it. And recall from the first part of this series of what the early Christians believed about Mary, when we talked about her divine maternity, that she was mother of God, we pointed out that this was super important to the early church because what we say about Mary is strictly connected with orthodox belief about Christ and his incarnation, that we call Mary mother of God because of what we believe about the person of Christ, that he, from the moment of his conception, was the indivisible union of humanity and divinity so that Mary truly is called the mother of God. And if we don't call her the mother of God, it's a sign that we have some improper understanding of the incarnation. Similar here, if we believe that Jesus is fully divine, then, then Mary's Immaculate Conception is part of that belief because God formed a pure vessel in which to reside, just like the Ark of the Covenant was considered pure and untouchable and was made from the purest acacia wood, etc. So this is not just some idea that came from Marian devotion. It's very much connected to what we believe about Christ. And we dealt with her divine maternity, her being the mother of God, first because it's the principal dogma in the sense that all of the other ones flow from it. It was in view of her being the mother of God that she was preserved from any stain of sin from the very moment of her conception. So it's in view of her being mother of God that we believe that she was immaculately conceived. It was in view of her being mother of God that she was a perpetual virgin. 
It was because of her being mother of God that she was assumed into heaven, body, and soul and enjoyed that special privilege. That's the fourth Marian dogma, the assumption. So all of these things are connected to, to her divine maternity. So because she is mother of God, which is a truth based on who Christ is, all of these other dogmas flow from it. Her divine maternity is her principle and highest grace, and all of these other things are connected to it. Regarding the late date of this definition of the dogma in 1854, I point you to a couple of episodes I did. First one is, Can Church Teaching Change? We deal with this idea of the development of doctrine in that episode. And also, is the Pope infallible? Because we talk a little bit about what it means for a Pope to be able to define dogma. So go back and listen to those if you want more context as to how we can accept a dogma defined so late. Just very briefly, I'll say that the first ecumenical council wasn't until three centuries after Christ. So was it improper then to define so late what was already believed since the very beginning, namely that Jesus is true God, that he is of one substance with the Father? No, of course it wasn't improper. It was just a formal definition and articulation because the doctrine was called into doubt by a particular person. Uh, similar here, even though it's 1,500 years later than that, you're still dealing with the same principle, that the church has always believed or lived a particular truth in her liturgy and in her teaching and preaching, but there comes a point for whatever reason, whether it's an increase in devotion or it's in response to a heresy, in order to protect the faithful, the church chooses to define certain things at certain points in history by God's providence, but she always enjoys that guidance of the Holy Spirit which Jesus promised to his apostles that whoever hears them, hears him, that he would send them the paraclete to guide them into all truth and that the gates of the netherworld would never prevail against the church. Before the definition that I read at the beginning of this episode, it's preceded by a summary of the church's belief on this matter of Mary's Immaculate Conception, both from scripture and tradition and the liturgy. And right before the definition, the Pope shows that he is relying on the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the authority of the Holy Spirit and his own authority given to him by Christ. And he says, quote, Wherefore, in humility and fasting, we unceasingly offered our private prayers, as well as the public prayers of the church, to God the Father through his Son, that he would deign to direct and strengthen our mind by the power of the Holy Spirit. In like manner did we implore the help of the entire heavenly host, as we ardently invoked the paraclete. Accordingly, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for the honor of the holy and undivided Trinity, for the glory and adornment of the Virgin Mother of God, for the exaltation of the Catholic faith, and for the furtherance of the Catholic religion, by the authority of Jesus Christ our Lord, of the blessed apostles Peter and Paul, and by our own, etc., etc. Then he reads the definition. So you can see that this is not something that a pope does lightly. It's a pope simply giving voice and articulation to something the church has always held within her heart from the deposit of divine revelation given to us by Christ and is just now expressing it for all the world in his capacity as the chief shepherd and teacher of the flock and as the vicar of Christ on earth. So with all that being said, what is the scriptural proof and the proof from tradition about this particular doctrine? Was it really indicated in scripture and was it believed by the early church? Well, there's a number of things we could point out in scripture, but I'll just point out two things. One is what we call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, the first uh, proclamation that after the fall, God would redeem his people. And that's when he is speaking to Eve and to the serpent. And he says that he will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And the fathers of the church from the very beginning interpreted this as Mary being a new Eve. And remember, Eve 
herself, who was just a, a sign or a foreshadowing of Mary in that she was the mother of all of humanity, whereas Mary is the mother of all believers. Eve was created, of course, without sin and in grace. Mary then, of course, being the fulfillment of that type, would be even more so created in grace without sin. Also, because there is enmity between her and the evil one, between her and the serpent, that means that she is outside the dominion of the evil one. That is, she is not conquered by sin. She is not a slave to sin. This is something the fathers of the church indicated very early on regarding this passage. So Mary as the new Eve, and as the one who is opposed to the serpent, and who along with Christ will crush the head of the serpent, shows that she has a special privilege and is not, and is not under the power of the evil one or under the power of sin. Another indication in the New Testament, one of the most important indications of Mary's holiness is when she is greeted by Gabriel, who calls her kakeritomene in Greek, which we say full of grace or overflowing with grace more properly, that she was filled to the brim with grace. And of course, that means no place for sin. For an angel to address a human like that is pretty unheard of. For an angel to show homage to a human being is pretty amazing to consider. And that's why we believe that Mary is the greatest creation of God, higher than all the angels, higher than all the other saints. Mary is God's greatest creation. So those are the two main things that the church fathers point to in belief in Mary's supreme holiness. Did they say immaculately conceived, immaculate conception? No, but what they believed about her is what we mean by immaculate conception, that she was holy in a unique way. But also keep in mind in that definition, Pope Pius IX makes it very clear that Mary still is saved by Christ, but the difference is while we are saved and our sins are wiped away because of the merits of Christ, which Christ's passion has already happened and so that grace is available to us, those graces were made available to Mary before the passion of Christ happened in history. So it was in view of the merits of Christ, whereas our salvation is on account of the merits of Christ that he won for us in his passion 2,000 years ago. So Mary is preserved from sin, whereas we are cleansed from sin. And we are cleansed from original sin at baptism. Mary was preserved from original sin and subsequent to that, preserved from any actual sin during her life. It's strange of those who deny this privilege to Mary or this grace that this is somehow something that would be impossible for God or unfitting for God for him to preserve his own mother from any sin, that she be as pure as possible in a way that none of us are. Uh, it's strange that that would be denied, as if God wouldn't do that, or it was unfitting that God do that. We're still saying Mary needed Christ for salvation. It's just that those graces were applied to her in a unique way, that is, before the fact. And God is outside of history, so of course this is not a problem. It's not a logical problem, it's not a historical problem. And then in addition to those scriptural references, we also have, like I just mentioned, the fittingness of it all, that it makes sense that God would do this, that he would make sure that his mother were pure. Venerable Fulton Sheen made this point. He says, if you could have designed your mother, if you could have created your mother, would you not have given her every privilege and every gift that you could? Well, we can't do that, but God can. You might want to say what blessed Dun Scotus said, God could do it. It was fitting that he do it, therefore he did it. Now that's not an airtight argument, but it is an argument of fittingness, which I think is pretty compelling. Now let's look at what some of the fathers of the church said. First we have the well-known Saint Augustine from the fourth century, says, quote, 
every personal sin must be excluded from the Blessed Virgin Mary for the sake of the honor of God, end quote. His friend and mentor, St. Ambrose, whose feast we celebrated just yesterday, says, quote, Mary, a virgin not only undefiled, but a virgin whom grace has made inviolate, free from every stain, end quote. St. Ephraim, from the fourth century as well, quote, you and your mother are alone in this. You are wholly beautiful in every respect. There is in you, Lord, no stain, nor any spot in your mother, end quote. There's also many indications from the way they praise Mary, saying that she is all holy or all sinless. They even do say sometimes that she is immaculate. That's what without stain means. Some more fathers here. Uh, Saint Athanasius, quote, O noble virgin, truly you are greater than any other greatness. For who is your equal in greatness, O dwelling place of God the Word? To whom among all creatures shall I compare you, O virgin? You are greater than them all, O covenant, clothed with purity instead of gold. You are the ark in which is found the golden vessel containing the true manna that is the flesh in which divinity resides, end quote. So again, note the comparison to the ark of the covenant. And this is Athanasius, one of the greatest defenders of Christ's divinity. So obviously in the early centuries, they did not see any conflict or contradiction or disrespect in saying that Mary is free from all sin because it made sense to them that God would make his mother in such a way. St. Augustine said in another place, quote, we must accept the Holy Virgin Mary concerning whom I wish to raise no question when it touches the subject of sin out of honor to the Lord. For from him we know that abundance of grace for overcoming sin in every particular was conferred upon her who had the merit to conceive and bear him who undoubtedly had no sin, end quote. Homily from the early fifth century, quote, a virgin, innocent, spotless, free of all defect, untouched, unsullied, holy in soul and body, like a lily sprouting among thorns, end quote. St. Andrew of Crete, in a sermon on Mary's birth, quote, today humanity in all the radiance of her immaculate nobility receives its ancient beauty, the shame of sin had darkened the splendor and attraction of human nature, but when the mother of the fair one par excellence is born, this nature regains in her person its ancient privileges and is fashioned according to a perfect model truly worthy of God. The reform of our nature begins today, and the aged world, subjected to a holy divine transformation, receives the first fruits of the second creation." End quote. So you can see there's, there's unanimity in the early church throughout the early centuries that Precisely because of Christ's holiness, it was true that Mary was uniquely holy, that it was fitting that the one who would carry the Christ child in her womb would not be stained by any kind of sin, and that's a privilege that belonged to her and to no other. Thank you for listening to Catholic Daily Brief. Please give a five-star rating and a good review if you enjoy these podcasts and share them with your family and friends. Also consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash catholicdailybrief.com.